I want to welcome you once again to Providence Road. My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. I say every week, if you're a guest with us, we're honored um, that you would come and spend a Sunday morning worshiping with us. We're continuing on in our uh, book, in our series, walking through the book of 1 Corinthians, and we find ourselves still in chapter 2 today. So if you want to follow along in a a physical Bible, um, they are under um, about every other chair. First Corinthians chapter two, it's about a three-fourths of the way through um, the, Bi- the Bible. If you need a physical Bible at home, please take that home with you. It's our gift to you. I feel like everyone should have a Bible at home to be able to read. So we're going to start in First Corinthians um, chapter two and verse six. But before I jump in there, I want to just mention that uh, this Wednesday starts the season of Lent season of Lent. And so um, it, Lent is 40 days leading up to Easter. And so I think it's good in the, in the church calendar to highlight some of these things. And Lent, if you're not as familiar with Lent as you are maybe with Advent, it's similar in the sense that it's a time where people prepare and think about and let their hearts kind of look ahead to Easter, which is 40 days ahead of time. And so it's a time where you um, give up something. You've probably heard people of that. Or maybe it's just a time where you focus a little bit more on spending time with Jesus and thinking about uh, the cross and the resurrection and the gospel in your life. So I just wanted to mention that we are kind of moving into the season of Lent. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 6. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. But but as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows the person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us in your word. We can know you. We can spend time with you, fellowship with you, commune with you through your word. We're so thankful that um, you've sent your spirit into this world to empower us, to enlighten our minds, to reveal the deep things that you want to teach us. And we're thankful for that. So I pray this morning as we look through this passage that you would change us, that you would change our minds, change the way we think, change our hearts, change the way we feel, what we value, what we treasure. And we change how we live when we leave this place. That we live a life that honors you, where we pursue holiness to glorify you. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. 
So I want to catch us up to where we find ourselves today, because once again, this is a letter. This is one letter Paul wrote, and um, it was meant to be read, or it would have been read, to the church in one sitting, probably. Now, they would have gone back and talked through it and, and took it apart and studied it, but the first time that the church was hearing it, more than likely, um, somebody stood up and read this to the church. So these are all connected from week to week. We just have to stop for the sake of time. And, but I want to go back and connect what Paul's trying to do with the first of this letter. Okay, and the early on in chapter 1, he says um, that he, he encourages the church. He tells them not to have any divisions among you. There's a unity problem in this church. And one of the main reasons why they have unity issues is because this is a young church, a lot of new believers. They have brought over uh, ideas, worldview, wisdom from the world, and now I've kind of brought that into the church. They've imported that into the church, and it's causing problems. They're seeing their Christian life the same as they saw their life um, outside the church. And Paul's going through trying to correct the way they are thinking. And at the end of chapter one and early in chapter two, like we looked at last week, Paul is really setting up kind of this wisdom of the world, which would have been very popular. And when Paul says wisdom, um, this was something that was highly valued that we talked about in the Greek culture, the Gentile culture there in Corinth. So everybody would have understood when he said wisdom of the world, what Paul was talking about. And he's kind of uh, putting that up against the gospel, the cross, um, God's, God's wisdom. Right? He says things like, in, in chapter 1, he says that, that the Greeks find the cross foolishness. It's silly because the way of the cross is the antithesis to the way of wisdom in that particular world. The way to find love and freedom and joy and value in the, 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 the world of Corinth is opposed to the way you find love, joy, and freedom in the cross. So a Greek looks at this um, and says, that's foolishness. The way of Jesus is foolishness. Why would I go that way when I could go this way, the, the, the promises that were found in Corinth? So Paul is kind of opposing these two things throughout those, the, the, the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. But today, um, he takes a, a little bit of a turn. Before we do that, I want us to stop and think about wisdom of the world, right? Because we can skip over this thinking, well, maybe Corinth was different, we don't have the same struggles that they do, but I think we would all have to admit that to some degree we are formed by the wisdom of the world. And even when I say wisdom of the world, do you kind of know what the wisdom of God versus the wisdom of the world is and, and the differences in those two things? The wisdom of the world has limits, right? Even this week, as I was sitting down studying and, and, and looking through the news at current events to see kind of what's going on in the world. It's part of uh, when I prep what I do. And, and it was striking this week, and pretty much every week you could do this, right, that there was a shooting in Germany. There was a stabbing at a London mosque. You got the coronavirus thing that's just everywhere, right? Everybody's talking about that. You've got politics that is always front and center. And People just can't seem to agree and get their stuff straight in politics. And so if, if the wisdom of the world is supposed to lead towards progress and unity and flourishing for people in all ways, and you can kind of see if you just look at the news that the wisdom of the world has limits. Like this idea of progress and we're progressive and, and yeah, but there's a lot of areas where we're not progressive, right? Politics, maybe. <laughs> maybe figuring out how to control a virus in certain parts of the world. Like we're not, not very good at some of these things. Now, there are things that we are progressing in and that's a good thing. But I say all that just to show that the wisdom of the world has limits. 
Like we can't intellect, or, um, we can't um, trust our intellect to find joy and freedom and value in just no more things, no more stuff, no more of a particular subject. It just doesn't work. This is what Paul's trying to kind of uh, get the Corinthians to see that it is different than the wisdom of God. But today, I want you to look at uh, verse 6, what, what he's going to do today, and he's going to kind of bring wisdom back in, and not, uh, um, not so much kind of oppose um, um, wisdom, and kind of, he's been speaking pretty negatively about wisdom, and I've come back and said, God still values wisdom, right? Paul still values the intellect, because in some gr- places in the first couple of chapters, it seems like Paul is kind of arguing against that, but Paul wants to make sure that he's not here. And so that first phrase in, in verse 6, he says, um, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Okay, so he says, among the mature, among those who are following Jesus, among those who are walking with Jesus, we do impart wisdom. There's, wisdom is important here. Wisdom is, is important to someone's uh, Christian life. But he's kind of saying, okay, you want to talk about wisdom. Let's talk about wisdom. I've kind of been pushing against wisdom for a little bit. Now we're going to talk about wisdom. Okay, and Paul is going to, um, in the next several verses, he's going to give us really three um, categories of wisdom and put the wisdom of the world against the wisdom of God. Kind of three things that he's going to show us. So uh, the first one, we're going to see in verses 6 and 7. So let's keep reading verse 6 and into verse 7. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. So the first aspect of wisdom that makes the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God different is is that one is limited by time. The wisdom of the world is limited by time. He even says here in verse 6, he says, "Um, It is not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. And when, they, when Paul was writing this to the, uh, the church here, the, in, in the Roman Empire, they had these statues built of Caesar. And they were supposed to worship Caesar and, and honor Caesar and honor his image and all of this. And so when he says rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, he's trying to make the point, it doesn't matter how smart you are, it doesn't matter how brilliant a person is, whether it's a philosopher or the leader of Rome, everybody dies. All human beings die and, and they're not more powerful, right? And so this wisdom is going to pass away. And he compares that to the wisdom of God, which he says is secret and hidden. And that secret and hidden is, doesn't mean that it's some kind of puzzle where God has kind of scattered the pieces and he's trying to giving us this problem to solve and putting them all together. It's not what he means. When he says secret and hidden, he just means that he hasn't revealed that yet. He slowly through that the history of the world has been revealing the wisdom that he has. We see that before Jesus came and now after Jesus came. Jesus coming was part of that secret wisdom, right? And those who lived before Jesus, they didn't see Jesus, all right? But God unveiled more of that wisdom. So that is what he's talking about. He's talking about secret and hidden wisdom. He says this wisdom was decreed before the ages for our glory. It's eternal. This wisdom of God existed before anything was created, and it will exist into all eternity. It is not limited by time. There's not a time where this, this source of wisdom will run out. You say, yeah, the Caesars, these Caesars that you worship on, they're all going to die. They're all going to die. You're worshiping people because they're smart, because they have intellect, because they have wisdom. They're going to die. The scripture says that in comparison to eternity, our life is a mist. 
It's there today, gone tomorrow compared to eternity. You can imagine a, a spray bottle and just spraying that in the air and how long it takes for that mist to go away. That should humble us, right? It should humble us, especially for those who are looking to these, these leaders and rulers for their wisdom. He's saying they're going to be gone. It's not going to last. It's not going to be fulfilling. Um, and so I think, again, we have to ask, will the wisdom of the world lead to joy and freedom and value? And, 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 and how is that working for you? If you're chasing that, if you're trusting in something else other than Jesus and that wisdom, that promise, how's it working? Is it delivering on the promises that it's promised you so far? I think these are questions we should ask ourselves. Um, verse eight, let's keep going. We're gonna get into the second aspect of wisdom here that Paul compares the two. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They would have crucified Jesus. If they knew the wisdom of God, that Jesus was the embodiment of the wisdom of God, they wouldn't have crucified him, right? Like no one would have done that, right? But they were blinded. They didn't know any better. They were blinded to that. Verse nine, but as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who loved him. And so this is the second kind of two things that he's comparing here. First, one kind of wisdom is limited by our senses. It's the wisdom of the world, right? And so why he mentions the eye hasn't seen the wisdom from God, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared. So for the wisdom of the world, there are limits. We're limited by our five senses. Those of you who are in the field of science, you've heard of the scientific method, right? The scientific method takes our senses and applies those to, to research and, and, and solving problems, right? But there are some things that our senses and the scientific method can't figure out. They can't find the answers to, that they can't perceive. There's a limit to our human faculties. This is what Paul's trying to get at here. Right now, is there a lot of things that we can perceive with our senses? Absolutely. Science can do a ton of good and a lot of discoveries being made by science. But it's arrogant for us as humans to think that science is going to tell us all the answers in the world. Or that if we just study hard enough with our senses, we're going to eventually to be able to get to the bottom of all the mysteries of the world, physical and spiritual not going to happen, right? We, we're not going to be able to do that. So part of being a human, we have to have some humility to say, we can't figure everything out through science. It's just not going to happen, right? Um, and so if we go back to verse nine there, it says, no, when I, no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagine what God has prepared for those who love them. Like we can't even imagine what God has for those that love him, for us his sons, his daughters. Like we've tasted some of that here in this life, but he's saying we can't even imagine what awaits us, especially the day that he returns or, or we die and we see him face to face, those of us who have professed faith, what he has prepared for us. And we can't even imagine it. Saying good luck trying to figure that out with the five senses. But that should excite us, right? Those of us who, who worship him and know him and trust him, like that's awaiting us. There's hope there for us. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's waiting for us. He who believes in the son has eternal life. Like that's waiting for us. All of these truths in the scripture that we have, we're sons, daughters, we're adopted, we have an inheritance. 
We're going to be, we're going to be a part of the, the great wedding feast of the Lamb at the end where, where the bride is being prepared for Jesus and we walk down the aisle as a church and Jesus is waiting for us. And God has prepared the church to meet Jesus on the altar in that wedding supper of the Lamb. And just let your mind wander there. It's just, it's beautiful. And that's what God has prepared for those who love him. Now try to like put that into a box and try to figure that out with the five senses. Paul's saying you can't. You can't figure some things out with the five senses. Like our knowledge and our wisdom are limited as human beings. He's going to talk about here in a second that only God can produce a supernatural work in the human heart. Listen to verse 10. These things, so the things that he's prepared for those who love him, that's what these things are. God has revealed to us this is important. This is, this is the third thing, but it's, it's the how. How has God revealed this wisdom to, to humanity? Through the Spirit. And the English Bible should have capital S there. This is the Holy Spirit, the third part of the Trinity, right? Big deal. For the Spirit, the Holy Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Verse 11, for who knows a person's thoughts? And this is, this is an illustration Paul's putting forward here. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person? Notice the little s. That's the kind of the anthropology, like that's, that's the part of a human being. We have our physical bodies and then we have the spirit. It's a place, it's, it's, it's inside of us. It's the core of who we are. So what Paul's saying in this metaphor is only something inside of a person really knows everything about that person. So our spirit, that part deep inside of us, knows our minds, knows our thoughts, knows our bodies, right? And so he says, for who knows the person's thoughts except the spirit of that person, little less, which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit, the big S, Holy Spirit of God, right? So it makes sense, right? This is, he's trying to lay out for how, how we understand this logically. So if, if the Spirit of God is inside of us as followers of Jesus, and that Spirit that's inside of us understands all about God, how awesome is that for us, right? Now we can understand things about God. We can have the mind of Christ, which he's going to talk about here in a second. Verse 12, now we have received not the Spirit of the world, Again, he's trying to make distance, trying to get the Corinthians to distance themselves probably from the previous lives a little bit, lives, spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. God has given to us in his promises freely lots of things, the things that, unimaginable things, but things we can also imagine, the things of the earth. And so he's saying the way that we understand, the way that we apply these things, the way we live out these things is all through the Spirit. The Spirit is the, the part of the Trinity that allows us to live the Christian life. This is why we can't forget about the Spirit. Oftentimes the Spirit's that part of the Trinity that kind of gets left out, or we think he's a little weird, so we don't want to talk about him, right? We have God the Father who sends the Son, and Jesus goes back up to heaven at the end of the Gospels, okay? Like Jesus is, he's alive, but as he existed on earth, he is not like that anymore. He is in heaven. So he sends the Spirit to live inside of us. And that's, that's the spirit of God, the spirit of Jesus, right? That lives inside of us. It's really important to have a, a robust understanding and theology of the Holy Spirit because he lives inside all of us who profess faith and call ourselves Christians. So the third aspect here is, um, is really, it's limited by access. The, the, the wisdom of the world is limited by access. It's, it's impersonal versus personal. 
So you think of any kind of worldly wisdom, we tend to go outside of ourselves to find that. We find an expert, we find a book, we find something to, to understand, something to take in to apply to our lives. That's how we get wisdom, but it's very impersonal. Information, data, stories, whatever it is, it's impersonal. It exists outside of us. But here God is saying that the Spirit dwells inside of us. This is personal. The Holy Spirit comes to dwell inside of us and changes us from the inside out rather than like worldly wisdom from the outside in. If we think about this idea of a personal God, this would have been mind-blowing to the, to the people that were listening to Paul and his original audience because you had this pantheon of gods in the Greek and Roman world, and they were powerful. They were kind of otherworldly. There was a lot of distance between them and humanity, and they were anything but personal, right? They were impersonal. They were powerful. And the thought to have a deity, a God, that dwelled inside of a person would have just been crazy to them. This wouldn't have made sense. And I think this is the same if a lot of us had to be honest for you and I. Like we, it would be much easier if God was distant, big distant God, kind of like the the pantheon of gods in Corinth. And this God would say, hey, I'm going to give you a list of principles or a list of things that you need to believe in. And that's how we're going to do this relationship thing, right? Like, Like, I'm going to stay distant, and I'm going to give you a list so you can go down that list and do the things I'm asking you to do on that list. How impersonal is that? And how impersonal is that? Like, like we would, I think, prefer to have a list of principles and things to believe in because it's easier for us to get our mind around or some just some data points to believe. And that, I think we would prefer that. And I think a lot of us, when we think of personal relationship with God, the Holy Spirit coming to live inside of us, a person of the Trinity living inside of us and empowering us in how we live, that's, that's strange. That's hard to get our mind around. Even those of us maybe who have been Christians for a long time, that may be a part of your theology that you have trouble with and you, you don't understand. And this would have been the same for the Corinthians, like to understand God living inside of them. And this is, I think, a danger for us in our stream of evangelicalism, kind of an oversimplification of our salvation where we say, hey, just believe, right? Like all you got to do is believe and then you'll be saved. And we kind of, when we say that, obviously there's belief involved, but when we say things like just believe or say this prayer or do this thing and then you'll be saved, it removes the personal aspect from it. It removes that personal thing where, no, like, yes, belief is involved, but when you believe, the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of you. It's, in, it's indwelling you. And he wants to, 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 to pour God's love into your heart, Romans says. It's the way we experience God. It's the way we feel the love of God. It's the way we, we, we minister on behalf of God. It's the way we love and serve others. All of that happens through the Holy Spirit, which is why this personal aspect of our salvation is so important. It's why we talk about having a personal relationship with God, right? We wouldn't say that if it wasn't personal. And the way it's personal is through the Holy Spirit. Because we know Jesus isn't here in physical form, like running around with us anymore. He's, he, he sent his spirit to live inside of us. He actually says it's better that way. It's better because the spirit can be in all believers where Jesus existed outside believers and they followed him around. But now we have the spirit living inside of us. So we have to know that there's a difference between like learning something, learning some content about something, and having a feel or a deep understanding for it. Right? So for example, you wouldn't want a medical student 
who had memorized the textbooks, knew all the vocabulary, knew all the anatomy, could ace tests on this, who's never been in an operating room before, never picked up a scalpel, never actually done the thing, you wouldn't feel really confident going, hey, they know everything to know about the human body. They've aced every test. They have never picked up a scalpel. Like, who wants to sign up for that surgery? Like, yeah, I'm the first one that they've ever cut on. Like, no. That's why in medical school, they train, they do lab work as you go, right? So you can actually work that out. There's one, there's, there's one aspect of knowing something, knowing facts about something, and actually experiencing it in a deep, deep way. Jonathan Edwards has this illustration, famous theologian that um, we learn a lot from, has this illustration that we've shared before about honey, right? And kind of the same idea. Like, I can let's just pretend none of us have tasted honey other than me in here. And I'm trying to explain to you, hey, this is how honey tastes. And I can be descriptive. I can tell stories about it. I can use words like, it's like this, or I would compare it to this. But you maybe will get a little sense of it, and maybe you would be like, yeah, I'd love to try honey. That sounds good. But you're not going to really know and experience honey until you taste it. And then once you taste it, you're like, that's sweet. That's good. I like honey, right? And, and, and you've, you've actually experienced honey now. Um, and so it's, it's the same that like that honey has a greater impact on you if you've actually tasted it. But if I just described to you what honey's like and you have all the facts about it, maybe you could even write a paper on honey, right? If you know all those facts, but you haven't really experienced the taste of honey before. And this is what Jonathan Edwards says. This is our relationship with God. Like knowing facts about God, data points, principles, system of beliefs, all really important. And, and things we encourage here. But if you don't have a personal experiential relationship with Jesus, then you're going to lack wisdom. And this is what he's saying here. Like the wisdom of God comes through the spirit in our personal relationship with him. Let's look at verse 13. Keep going. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Verse 15, the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. Okay, so again, he kind of lays out two people here. You have a natural man, and all natural means here is just someone who, who doesn't know Jesus. Someone who doesn't have the Holy Spirit is not a Christian. And then the spiritual person in this case that he's laying out is the one who's a Christian, who has the Holy Spirit, right? A lot of writers and, and things in, in, throughout history, this has been a big um, verse to, to argue about. And what does that really mean? And I think oftentimes it just, we, we, we run too far and we, we try to overcomplicate it, right? Most commentators think he's just talking about those who are saved and those who aren't, those who are followers of Jesus and those who are not. So he's saying the problem with the natural man, the one who doesn't know Jesus, isn't that he doesn't understand the Bible, or that he doesn't um, understand the gospel. Because what, if you look at verse 14, he says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. So it's not that he doesn't understand them or doesn't comprehend them. He doesn't accept them as having any power or value or worth. He doesn't treasure those. He kind of dismisses those. He's like, yeah, I get it, but that's not for me. I don't value it. They don't need to become a part of my life. I'm not really interested in those things. 
So it's not like he, he, he's um, unintelligent and this person can't understand the Bible. Like any, and really anybody can understand the Bible to some degree. There are people who uh, aren't Christians who are a lot smarter than me, who are, who are teaching in academia, who know a lot more than the Bible about me but they may not treasure it and they may not put themselves under the Lord of Jesus Christ and, have, uh, and be following him as followers of Jesus, right? So that's what he's going back and forth, the natural man and the spiritual man here. One person, the spiritual person, uh, through the Holy Spirit, it's revealed to him and said, that's good, I value that, I treasure that, I love God, I want more of that. That's the, that's the Christian's response to um, the wisdom of God because the spirit is working inside of him. But the, 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 un, the, the natural person doesn't value the word, the Holy Spirit, the wisdom of God, the things of God like the spiritual person does. So the natural man is going to have trouble um, really valuing the gospel, the Christian message. So that's why we talked about last week that the Holy Spirit has to move in someone's heart, has to do something before someone can believe. Right? That, and that's, that's, that's what he's, again, echoing here. He's saying that the natural man can't accept the things of God unless the Spirit actually reveals it to him because the source of wisdom is through the Spirit. That's why the gospel is going to be foolishness. Not because it doesn't make sense, but it's like preposterous that someone could actually like lay down their life for this teaching. And so really what this comes at, and Paul's kind of behind the, uh, if you look underneath the text throughout this whole, these two verses, these two chapters, I should say, um, he's really aiming at human's pride. Because here's what this does. If all of this is up to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's the one who reveals um, wisdom from God, what do we have to boast in? But those of us who are followers of Jesus, is it, oh, I made a really good decision one day, and that's why I'm a Christian. Or I was, I, was, I was discipled by someone, and that's why I'm really smart. Or, you know what, like, I just have it figured out, and all these other people who don't believe, they're just, they, they just, they just can't get there. They just don't have their heads on straight. No, like, we can't say that because of this. The Holy Spirit is the one who reveals the wisdom of God, who reveals the truth of God to human beings. And that's the, those are the people who have faith, those who the Spirit has revealed himself to. So it just strips away every ounce of, of pride that humans may have to say, I can get myself to God, or I can be a good enough person, or look at my resume, God, how awesome I am. Say, no, that's not, how, that's not how you get to God. You get to God when the Spirit reveals himself, reveals God, the wisdom of God, to a human being. Like all of us in this room at one time, we were natural men or natural women, the the way that Paul describes it here. And the Spirit revealed himself to us and we believed. Okay, the other aspect of this, we're going to get into more next week, this little bit of a tease for next week, but this idea of maturity um, really is is spiritual, right? Like if you're going to say, am I mature? Is someone mature? Um, For the most part, the Bible would say someone who is a spiritual person is mature, not someone who knows a lot of stuff, not someone who's intellectual, but the mature person in Christ is the one who is spiritual. Jesus says things like, um, uh, those who know me will bear much fruit, right? Galatians 5, Paul said, the fruit of the Spirit is, right? It's a spiritual thing. These are markers of maturity. Jesus says, whoever believes in me will keep my commandments. And it's, again, fruit of maturity, okay? And we're going to get into all that next week, but there's a, there's a limit to our wisdom. And I think that is what Paul is trying to make here, the point here. And then uh, verse 16, last verse, for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? 
but we have the mind of Christ. Again, trying to keep us humble. He's like, who's understood the mind of the Lord to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ, saying that when we have the Holy Spirit, it's like we have insights that Jesus had. We have the mind of Christ. It's not, not that we're perfect, not that we can understand all this, the mysteries of God, but we have access to the Father now, the same way Jesus had access to the Father. We understand um, the way Jesus lived to a greater degree, the things he taught, all of those things to a greater degree because we have the Spirit. We have the mind of Christ. Now, I want to talk through a couple implications and then we'll close. Um, so if you're here in this room, if we're... If you're a professing Christian, I think one of the things that this should drive you to is a greater degree of dependence, a greater degree of reliance on the Holy Spirit. And not just kind of God in this like, yeah, I believe in God and I need to trust God. But no, you're, you're actually trusting when you say that you're trusting in the Holy Spirit. You're trusting in the one who lives inside of you to work in you to cause greater belief or more ministry or whatever it is. And so those of us who in this room who consider ourselves followers of Jesus, when we say, I, wanna, I need to rely more on God or I need to depend more on God, we're depending on the spirit of God who lives inside of you, which is, which is crazy. I think that, that, that personal aspect of the gospel should just rock your world. The fact that God in his wisdom didn't say, once again, here, lay out, let's, let's have this list of things that you need to do to come to me. It's like, no, you can't do this. You can't understand this. You can't come to me. So I'm going to come to you. My son is laid down his life, rise from the dead, go back to heaven, but then leave the Holy Spirit to live inside the followers of Jesus for as long as they live. I mean, that is, that is a great part of the gospel that we often um, get left out, right? We, don't, we tend to uh, miss that when we think about the gospel. We have the risen Christ, the victorious risen Christ living inside of us. And I think often too, maybe in our church or once again in our stream of evangelicalism, we're so quick to get, yeah, but we're still sinners. Yes, we are. Yeah, but we still have our flesh. Absolutely. But we have the spirit of Christ, the victorious Jesus living inside of us. And that is mind-blowing. And what, what access we have to God, what kinds of things we can do in our lives through the power of the Spirit. We need to lean into those things, I think, a little bit more, especially as a church. And this is what Paul wants them to do here. So again, dependence, reliance. That's the first thing. Dependence and reliance on God, the Spirit of God, okay? Um, the second thing is, is um, a kind of application point is how do we set ourselves up, our, our lives up, to be able to experience more of the Holy Spirit? How do we do that? What, what are we going to do? And I think the, the primary way we do that is to adopt really the lifestyle of Jesus. One author said you can't have the life of Jesus, which we all want, right? You can't have the life of Jesus if you don't adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. You can't have the life of Jesus if you don't adopt the lifestyle. But what was the lifestyle of Jesus as it relates to the Father? He spent to- a lot of time with him, right? He abided um, in, in God. He had this connection with God. He communed with God. So the questions we need to ask ourselves, how can we set our lives up, our days, our weeks, our months, to abide in him as much as possible? How are we going to commune with the Spirit? How are we going to get to know the Spirit if we don't set aside time to be with the Spirit through our, 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 our practices? How are we going to taste the honey? Instead of being able to like just talk about the honey really well, how are we going to actually taste the honey. And I think this comes back to spiritual practices, right? Like what are the things in our lives that we can do to, to create that communion, 
Things like spending time in the Word or prayer are always the, the ones I would recommend first, right? Those are easy. Let's create time for those things. But also silence, solitude, Sabbath, fasting, simplicity. All these are practices that, again, this is the lifestyle of Jesus because he practiced all of those things and we follow him, we can practice those things as well. So number one, rely on him at a deeper level. Number two, how are we setting up our lives to experience more of the spirit and be able to live the way he's calling us to live? And then I would say the third one um, has implications for ministry and evangelism. I talked about this last week, but if it's the work of the Holy Spirit, inside of people that reveals God to them, right? And that's what we want for people. We want God to reveal himself to people, right? If, if that's the job of the Holy Spirit, our job then is to make the gospel as clear as possible. And once again, pray and trust and ask the spirit to use us in people's lives. So as we love people, we minister to people, we counsel people, we evangelize, we can be bold and we can have confidence that like, hey, I, I'm gonna try my best. I'm gonna try my best here, but but it's not my job to make somebody understand or force somebody to, to believe in the gospel. It's not our job. It's the Holy Spirit's job. And so that should free us. It should lighten our, our weight as we think about those things to move in confidence, knowing the Spirit's inside of me. And I'm going to trust that he's going to give me what I need in that moment to, to minister in the way I need to minister. But we have to take that step, right? Like we're not robots. He's not gonna just force us into these situations. We have to take steps of faith in our everyday life to say, I'm gonna use my gifts here. I'm gonna share my faith here. Or I'm gonna ask this person like what they think about God. Or I'm gonna tell a part of my story here in this conversation. Once again, not so you can convince them, not your job, but to be faithful and be a faithful witness and to, to make the gospel as simple as as possible. Let's pray. Father, I thank you once again for this time. I thank you for um, you revealing yourself in your word. We wouldn't know what you're like. We wouldn't know the gospel. We wouldn't know your character. We wouldn't know about your grace and your mercy without your word. So we're so thankful that in your divine providence, you've chosen to reveal yourself in the Bible. I pray that we would grow in our love for the Bible, knowing that your spirit speaks through the word. And as your spirit's speaking through the word, the spirit inside of us is there to, to understand it and value it and treasure it to a greater degree. And the spirit, one spirit works together to help us experience you and know you. So help us. Help us with our distraction. Help us with things that we maybe put in place of spending time with you. Things that we set our minds on and are distracted by rather than being focused on you and your son and your spirit and how we can live lives that honor you to a greater degree. Help us. Make us be more dependent. Make us be more reliant on you. Rid us of our pride our spiritual pride, our intellectual pride. Know that everything we know and how we love all comes through the Spirit. And we're so thankful for that. Amen.